Welcome back to America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, and I'm here again with Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Nice to see you again, Andy. So um, we're back here in what's really presidential month, right? We've, we've passed uh, Lincoln's and Washington's birthday, and that's appropriate for our podcast because we've been dealing with a whole bunch of things that surround the presidency. You know, first we did kind of a, a unit on bullets dodged, which, of course, referred to the presidential election. Um, then we did some some work on presidential impeachment, and then on uh, presidential succession and other issues surrounding the the election and the aftermath. So now we're going to go a little bit back in time and have a uh, a month of of addressing uh, some of our our original presidents, and this is going to be in the context of uh, really uh, Akil's great project of recent years, which is uh, his new book, uh, the, the Words That Made Us. So um, why don't we start off with you just telling us a little bit about the book in general. What's the, what's the project of the book? The project of the book was to write a book, Andy, for, that you would like. And, uh, and uh, this is uh, quite, quite literally true because you uh, helped me more than anyone else on, on the book. Um, and uh, it really was our collaboration together with you being my most faithful reader of the book that in effect launched our website and, and podcast. Um, uh, but, but for the rest of you all who, who weren't in on the uh, Akil Andy Love Fest, uh, um, this book is basically, it's a love letter to America, um, and it's about what we Americans have in common, which is our constitutional story, our constitution and the saga in which, the intergenerational saga in which that constitution is embedded. Um, and this book, which is going to be uh, uh, out in May, May 4th, um, uh, is the pub date, the publication date. Uh, tells the story of the first 80 years of the American Constitutional Project. The words that made us America's Constitutional Conversation, 1760 to 1840. And it's almost a pun in the title. The words that made us can also be understood as the words that made the U.S. Yes. And um, so we thought we would give our, our audience kind of a, a preview of the book. Um, and, you know, a lot of times authors will conduct readings of their books after they've been published. And uh, so we're going to start with some brief readings uh, today, and we'll, we'll continue this over the next few weeks. And we'll be doing it um, by president. So today we're going to, I beg your pardon? Exactly. Um, and, uh, and, and this, I think, fits nicely with what we've been talking about before, because we've been talking about how important it is today for Americans to pick the right president and get the right president in place at the right time, that is quickly after uh, election. And you may remember that one of my bigger themes was that um, this is such a weighty decision, and yet most Americans don't even approach it the right way because they, they don't even know enough about past presidents, who's done the job well, who hasn't. So it would be as if you were trying to draft a, a quarterback, let's say, in the NFL, um, and you had no idea who were the good previous quarterbacks and not so good previous quarterbacks. Well, how are you actually going to draft the right person for the position if you actually ha have no clue about who's, done, who's filled that position well and not so well um, in the past? And of course, the 
the place to start is at the beginning with Washington, who as was famously referred to as first in war, first in peace, first in the heart of his countrymen, and now first in our podcast. Uh, of course, you know, some, some wag extended this when they were talking about the uh, sad sack the Washington Senators baseball team by adding last in the American League. <laughs> so uh, let's begin. Yes. Um, th- this is a section called Why Washington? And it's in a chapter called Washington uh, in this book uh, out in May, The Words That Made Us. Why Washington? Literally and figuratively, George Washington towered above all alternatives in 1789. As his fellow citizens understood, he was an energetic, experienced, geostrategic American Republican without equal. As they may or may not have appreciated, but as we today can appreciate with the benefit of hindsight, Washington was also, to use a modern expression, media savvy. He was himself both the product of America's emerging newspaper culture and a connoisseur of it. Consider first the issues of energy and geostrategic experience. America's constitutional commander-in-chief would need considerable vigor to launch an ambitious new legal regime and defend America's vital interests. The 57-year-old Washington still had some good years ahead of him. By contrast, the octogenarian Benjamin Franklin was simply too ancient. Born in 1706, Franklin would die less than a year after Washington's inauguration. Various younger leaders had vigor, but nothing close to Washington's blend of executive, military, and diplomatic experience. Jefferson and Jay, for example, were more than a decade junior to Washington. In 1789, these men were rather green. Jefferson's detractors also thought him rather yellow. He had been an unsteady wartime governor who had failed to fortify Virginia and mobilize his militia when the enemy approached, and then fled the capital in haste, allowing the British to capture weapons, ammunition, supplies, documents, and other valuables that should have been evacuated. Later, he bolted from his Monticello estate and left the state leadership for more than a week at a particularly parlous time. After his governorship, he went off to Paris as an American diplomat, but could not claim much credit there. Franklin, Adams, and Jay had already negotiated and signed the Treaty of Paris long before Jefferson's arrival. Jay had no military or gubernatorial experience, and what diplomatic experience he could claim under the Confederation was mixed. The Treaty of Paris was a stunning triumph, but it was more Franklin's triumph as senior strategist. Negotiating on his own with Spain in 1786, Jay had been gulled into giving up America's claims to the Mississippi River for a quarter century in exchange for immediate trade concessions that would benefit New England fishermen. The Confederation Congress predictably and sensibly declined to ratify Jay's deal, but the Spanish in the process had given Southwestern Americans reasons to doubt the trustworthiness of Northeasterners, all part of Spain's long-term strategy of prying loose America's backcountry. Now, in fairness... Jefferson's disgrace stemmed in part from larger flaws in the structure of executive power under Virginia's constitution, much as Jay's debacle reflected the weakness of American power under the Confederation. Washington, too, had suffered multiple military embarrassments because of American impotence. But Washington had responded with extraordinary physical courage, organizational discipline, Republican rectitude, stoic perseverance, military cunning, tactical cleverness, and strategic vision. These gifts had enabled uh, him to avoid annihilation in New York, boost morale at Trenton and Princeton, endure Valley Forge, rally his men at Monmouth, and ultimately triumph at Yorktown. More generally, Washington was a far abler and more experienced diplomatist than the likes of Jefferson and Jay. 
Jefferson leaned too far toward the French, Jay toward the English. Washington, by 1789, understood that America needed to avoid dependence on any nation, howsoever friendly that nation might seem at any given moment. From his earliest days, he had seen most of America's military rivals up close and with a keen eye. Starting in his early 20s, he had fought alongside various Indian tribes and against them, alongside the British and against them, against the French and alongside them. True, he had made diplomatic blunders. His first one at age 22 was a doozy. It had triggered a world war. But he had learned from his own mistakes and from others' mistakes. And by 1789, he had become a master of international affairs and related military matters. If the first job of America's president was to protect America from European reconquest, and that was indeed the president's first job in 1789, Washington was obviously the right man for the job. No one else came close. John Adams, born in 1735, was proximate in age to Washington, but nowhere near him in the mix of capabilities he could offer. Adams lacked military experience. He had no deep familiarity with Indian tribes. He'd never served as a state governor. Now, neither had Washington, but Washington had shown impressive managerial skill in running his bustling plantation and far-flung investment properties and in serving as the administrative head of a vast army. Adams had worked hard as a diplomat, was fiercely loyal to America, and was far less vulnerable to diplomatic blandishment than Jefferson or Jay. But Adams was also flawed as a diplomat. His biggest problem was that he was so thoroughly undiplomatic. He lacked both self-mastery and tact. Washington, by contrast, was the embodiment of public self-control, official decorum, and civic politesse. In an early 1783 letter, written in cipher to confidant James Madison, Jefferson, then still a friend of Adams before the two men fell out in the 1790s, put the point tartly, quote, the newspapers must be wrong when they say Mr. Adams has taken up his French abode with Dr. Franklin. I'm nearly at a loss to judge how he will act in the negotiation. He hates Franklin. He hates Jay. He hates the French. He hates the English. To whom will he adhere? Unquote. The answer, of course, was that Adams would always adhere to America. But so would Washington, and Washington had so much more to offer. So that's the, uh, the first passage here. So let's take a moment and, and think about this. Um, you know, what, part of the reason that we're looking at this is that Washington was elected unanimously. It wasn't just that he was elected by a little. He was the, not just the overwhelming choice. He was essentially the only choice. Um, so, so we're looking at, you know, how all these things went into that remarkable fact. Yeah, it's, it's stunning when you think about it today. Amer how, how, Americans can't unanimously agree that the sky is blue Correct. today. You're right. Yeah. So, wow. So, that, um, so anything that, that would tarnish these thoughts at all, one would think, would, would you know, le lead to this not being unanimous. And you know, as I was reading it, one of the things that I thought about was, you, know, you mentioned Washington's diplomatic skills, but how did Americans really know about his diplomatic skills. I mean, was it, you know, they, they were the voters. I mean, was it because of his, his public persona of, of formality and, and dignity? Beyond that, I don't know that they would have known much about his, his diplomatic skills. Um, well, well, that's a great question. I think there, you know, there are links in the chain. People don't know Washington directly, um, but in the t uh, six degrees of Kevin Bacon, they know people who know people who know Washington. 
So there are folks in the military and in Congress who are watching Washington up close. If you're in the military, day in and day out over many years, um, they in turn are among America's um, most respected folks. Many of them are serving in Congress. And so I think it, it, it filters out from folks who serve under him, who, um, uh, to whom he's reporting in Congress, um, uh, to whom he's actually writing from time to time um, uh, uh, letters. He, he writes to the, to the 13 state governors and uh, circular letters and, 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 and has uh, 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 things in, that appear in, in newspapers. So, so even if you don't know Washington uh, directly, you know people who do know Washington directly, or at the very least, you know people who know people who know Washington directly. And I think that also it gets to, to one of the themes about Washington that you alluded to at the beginning of this passage, which is his mastery of the press. And this is something uh, yes. that's, that's underestimated. So yes, and, and we will come back to that before the end of today's session, I hope. Yes, exactly so. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a tightrope that he has to walk because on the one hand, he wants to appear um, above it all, um, you know, I mean, Adams, for example, seems, uh, you know, temperamental and so forth. But if he's too regal in his in his positioning, that's not good either, as we'll see. Yeah. And um, so do you tweet all the time? That would be John Adams. Do you um, uh, keep a very low profile, um, um, which is more Biden like, at least thus far? That would be George Washington. And of course, he didn't just win unanimously because of his military prowess. There were other things that went into it as well, as I think you'll tell us here as you'll pursue in the next section. Okay, so here's the next section. Consider next the ways in which Washington stood as an American Republican without peer. Republicanism, American style, wove together several threads. At a minimum, revolutionary Republicans opposed military, autocratic, aristocratic, and dynastic rule. More affirmatively, they embraced popular self-government, civilian supremacy, rights protection, the rule of law, birth equality, impartial meritocracy, civil sacrifice, and patriotic virtue. The 17th century English philosopher Thomas Hobbes had famously argued that anarchy was the worst condition imaginable, a war of all against all, in which human life was, quote, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short, unquote. Compared to that, even a domineering and arbitrary hereditary monarch was better so long as he maintained basic order internally and kept his subjects safe from external attack. American revolutionaries rejected this bleak Hobbesian vision. They sampled from a sumptuous smorgasbord of theorists, John Locke, Algernon Sidney, James Harrington, English leveners led by John Lilburn, Commonwealth pamphleteers such as John Trenchard and Thomas Gordon, Scottish Enlightenment figures including David Hume, Adam Smith, Thomas Reed, and Francis Hutchinson, and many more. Revolutionaries also built on more than a century and a half of de facto self-rule in the new world. In homegrown assemblies, juries, militias, town meetings, and other local democratic structures, Americans had made countless day-to-day life-and-death decisions over many years without strong supervision from faraway London. This New World history inspired revolutionaries to believe that ordinary folk were indeed capable of governing themselves without dynastic monarchs and hereditary lords directing their every move. Patriots thus wanted a leader who could protect them against King George without himself becoming a King George. 
On this issue, even conservative American revolutionaries stood with Thomas Paine. Slavery aside, no state embraced hereditary rule, and many state constitutions explicitly condemned the idea. The Massachusetts Constitution of 1780 put the point pugnaciously, thanks perhaps to the pen of John Adams, quote, title being in nature neither hereditary nor transmissible to children or descendants or relations by blood, the idea of a man born a magistrate, lawgiver, or judge is absurd and unnatural, unquote. The Confederation had imposed almost no limits on internal matters of governance within each then-sovereign state, with one notable exception. No state could award hereditary titles of nobility. The Constitution repeated this ban and deepened it by requiring that each state government maintain its republican form, that's a quote, language that perfectly intermeshed with the contemporaneously drafted Northwest Ordinance, which required that all fledgling states in this vast backcountry quadrant, quote, shall be Republican, unquote. So, too, the Constitution prohibited the federal government from creating hereditary nobility. Many unrepublican old-world monarchs and militaries ruled by force, fear, and greed. In the worst of such regimes, unelected autocrats pursued their own self-interest and personal profit, saddled the populace with heavy taxes that had never been democratically authorized, maintained power via standing armies of paid and perhaps foreign mercenaries and corrupt civilian networks of bribery and patronage, and then handed off power to their offspring. Soldiers killed and cowed civilians, while civil officers fleeced the populace and lined their own pockets. Law did not matter, or if it did, it was routinely bent to favor rich and powerful insiders. Judges were merely puppets and lackeys of the unelected autocrats in charge. Proper republics, by contrast, depended on widespread civic virtue, citizen participation, and patriotism. In the best of such regimes, common folk informed themselves about politics, especially by reading newspapers, deliberated in good faith with their fellow citizens, voted in free and fair elections with the aim of choosing the most able and virtuous, willingly obeyed democratically enacted laws, including tax laws, participated in juries and militias when summoned, and staffed elective and appointed positions of public service when called to do so by their fellow citizens. George Washington's entire life showed that he had embraced and honored Republican principles. In 1775, he had left the comforts of home to risk everything for the revolution and had accepted no payment for his, for his services only reimbursement for actual expenses. During the war, he had scrupulously honored Congress's commands, even when Congress had been foolish and feckless. As a true Republican, he understood that to do otherwise would be to lose the war, even were he to win every battle. The war was a crusade for Republicanism, and winning meant that Republican principles must triumph. Proper Republicans believed in civilian supremacy, democratic legitimacy, and free elections and the force of law, and not the law of force. Not only did George Washington never try to stage a military coup himself, but he successfully suppressed other officers' incipient efforts to use the army to intimidate civilian authorities. He understood both intellectually and viscerally that the men who had served in arms with him had legitimate grievances. They had not been paid as promised, and they were not receiving the support they needed to defend America. Still... The proper Republican recourse was to petition Congress or the courts, 
not to march on lawmakers with loaded guns and veiled threats. When the war ended and he commanded the only effective army on the continent, Washington had not named himself king, as had William the Conqueror, or Lord Protector, as had Oliver Cromwell, or Emperor, as had Augustus Caesar, and as would Napoleon. Rather, in in the tradition of the acclaimed Roman patriarch, Lucius Quintus Cincinnatus, Washington had dismissed his troops, resigned his military commission, and returned home to resume private life. Such a man, Americans believed, could be trusted with the presidency. So there's a lot in there about republicanism, and actually the Constitution requires uh, that states maintain a republican form of government. What is a republican form of government in that sense? Well, some of the, the themes that I've been telling you about, civilian supremacy, rule of law, rights protection, birth equality, um, uh, 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 m- most uh, literally and essentially, I would say, popular self-government. A republican government uh, comes from the Latin race publica. It's the people's thing, the public's thing. So I believe it has an intimate connection to um, basically, majority rule. Um, it's really not so different from democratic government. One is Greek, demos kratias. One is Latin, res publica. But basically, the idea is that the government should be, to borrow a phrase, of the people, by the people, for the people. I say that because, um, you know, in, after the Civil War, as we'll see later, um, the question of whether Republican governments were in place became an important one. Um, so I think it's important for people to understand what, what the Constitution means by that. And one of the reasons that, the, and we're getting way ahead of ourselves, this is probably not even going to be until next year's podcast, but, but one of the reasons that um, uh, members of Lincoln's party refused to seat the South is uh, when Southern states said, after the, having lost the Civil War, okay, we're ready to come back and we want to be admitted to um, the House and the Senate. We want our seats back. Uh, the party of Lincoln said not so fast because you don't have fair votes in the South. You're not letting black people vote. In South Carolina, black people are 60% of the population. You're not letting them vote. And you don't really have free speech either. And you can't really have a Republican government without free speech and fair votes, and fair votes that include the great mass of the citizenry, not just um, a tiny elite. That's what a Republican government is, a government of, by and for the people, and you can't have that without broad political expression as well. So that's kind of a big theme, and now just to look at a a little point here, um, you mentioned that Washington took no pay as a general. So is that Republican? Because... I believe there was a point made later in his administration that he had to take a salary so that you know other men, perhaps not wealthy men, could hold uh, important public office. So how about it's this question an, of pay and republicanism? It's an important theme, attention in republicanism. Classic republicanism was uh, about uh, virtue and sacrifice and being willing to do things just in the public interest. And Washington um, and Franklin were that kind of old school um, uh, uh, Republican, uh, don't pay us and we will um, just um, serve um, uh, as patriots. Um, but a newer uh, model emerged 
in which there was a recognition maybe that was good enough for Rome because in Rome basically you got slaves to do all the work and actually maybe it would work for for someone like Washington who has slaves to do some of the work but in modern America um, ordinary people are working stiffs and they're working for a living and um, so it's actually more Republican to pay people to insist that actually government servants be paid because otherwise only the idle rich will be able to afford to serve. And so you're right. In America, one of the really important provisions of the Constitution is that we provide salaries for House members and Senate members. Um, Britain doesn't begin to do that until 1911 because, again, in Britain, there's this older model, um, but it's um, uh, um, an elitist model. Only the idle rich are able to serve, even in the House of Commons, because, to repeat, until 1911, even members of the House of Commons didn't get paid. And so the only people who are going to be able to serve in the House of Commons are, are people who are independently wealthy. So Washington's on both sides of that then. He's uh, in, in an interesting way. So he's, this is kind of a, an inflection point on that, on that issue. It absolutely is. And indeed, in his inaugural address as president, he actually promises to forego a salary. But the first Congress says, no, we actually think it's really better that we pay you and everyone else. We're going to pay you well, $25,000, but you have to take it because if you don't take it, you'll set a precedent um, that will be bad and it will be hard for people who aren't independently wealthy to aspire to the presidency, like, say, John Adams. Of course, Donald Trump refused a salary. And then took it and donated it, I believe. I did not know that. So um, why don't we continue? Okay. Washington had what all others, even the second place Adams, lacked. An unparalleled record of patriotic sacrifice and Republican self-restraint. He also lacked what some others, especially the second place Adams, had. A son and namesake who might yearn for the chair he would now occupy. Tellingly, only one of the first nine presidential elections crowned a man with a legitimate, openly acknowledged son. The only exception, John Adams, is the only man who won but a single term. That man's son and namesake, John Quincy Adams, did indeed yearn for and ultimately win the chair his father had once occupied. Apart from John Adams, no early president had a son or even a younger brother who went on to hold high office. Washington was a perfect fit to become father of his country because he was not father of any children of his own, children who might tempt him to stray from the narrow path of Republican rectitude and impartiality. In keeping with the themes of patriotism, duty, and sacrifice that he repeatedly and publicly sounded during his two-week journey from Mount Vernon to Manhattan in April 1789 to take his inaugural oath, Washington's inaugural address had initially included a pointedly personal Republican reference to fatherhood and the fatherland, to paternity and patriotism. He could be trusted, he wrote in his first draft, because he would not play favorites. He was politically uninterested in the throne, he explained, because he was personally disinterested. He had no one to give it to when he was gone. Here's a quote from that early draft. Divine providence hath not seen fit that my blood should be transmitted or my name perpetuated by the endearing, though sometimes seducing, channel of immediate offspring. I have no child for whom I could wish to make a provision, no family to build in greatness upon my country's ruins, no earthly consideration beyond the hope of rendering some little service to our parent country that have persuaded me to accept this appointment. Unquote. 
George Washington was a reserved and disciplined man, a classical stoic in many ways, and he ultimately decided to omit this highly emotional and personal passage. Perhaps it was just as well. His fellow citizens did not really need this reminder. In the great constitutional conversation of 1787 to 1788, closely related dynastic issues had in fact been publicly ventilated. The anti-federalist essayist, federal farmer, worried that, quote, when a man shall get the chair, who may be re-elected from time to time for life, his greatest object will be to keep it, to gain friends and votes at any price, to associate some favorite son with himself, to take the office after him, whenever he shall have any prospect of continuing the office in himself and family, he will spare no artifice, no address, and no exertions, unquote. Countering this concern about favorite sons and presidential re-eligibility under Article II, Federalists emphasized another aspect of Article II, which a requirement that a president be at least 35 years old. In language reminiscent of Thomas Paine's Common Sense, one Federalist essayist reminded readers that Britain's king, quote, is hereditary and may be an idiot, a knave or a tyrant by nature, unquote. By contrast, America's president, quote, cannot be an idiot and probably not a knave or a tyrant for those whom nature makes so reveal it before the age of 35 until which period he cannot be elected Unquote. in other words the constitution prevented americans in a passing moment of weakness from crowning some untested youngster who was the apple of his presidential father's eye only middle-aged leaders with republican track records of their own successes and failures would be eligible for the presence so, you know, dynastic politics is something we're actually hearing about nowadays. So, for example, age 35 uh, is younger than it used to be, isn't it? Um, I mean, do you think... And, 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 and put that aside, you know, Donald Jr., Eric, Laura Trump. So um, dynastic issues are with us today. You're right. And so do you think that the... Um, that this is because of a of a you know a biological change, or do you think it's just that the the Constitution had inadequate protections in this respect? Or no, some other you, you you can't blame the Constitution. You have to blame Americans today who aren't actually heeding the deep structure of the thing. What I just re read to you is it was thirty five because we were supposed to insist on a track record of service. That's why George Washington is picked as this amazing track record of service. But the drafting committee for the NFL somehow doesn't understand that that's what you're looking for in a quarterback. Americans today don't understand that's what we should, we should be looking for for a president. And we can't blame the framers. We can't blame the Constitution. We have to look into a mirror because we didn't understand what 35 was all about, which is a Republican track record. You see, and, and that's not on the framers. That's on us. Well, I think it's interesting because this relates to the project of your book in a sense. You know, it's it's one thing to obey the Constitution as a series of, of laws or numbers or whatever. And say, well, of course, it, you know, the Constitution says 35. We're not going to elect someone that's 33. So therefore, we're following the Constitution. But in fact, if we don't understand what lies behind that, and that's really the instruction that is left to us, um, then we can't really practice as good citizens. So I think right. it's very important to understand that 35 is, yes, it's a number, yes, it's rigid, but it's also uh, a lesson. 
Exactly. And that's why this first um, uh, episode in uh, our series on the book is why Washington? Like everyone knows that Washington is present, but why? And can we learn any lesson from that? And of course, I'm going to always try to connect it to the words of the Constitution and show you how this is the iceberg underneath, let's say, the words 35 or the word Republican that we've been talking about, which is in the Constitution. You know, when we talk about the Constitution as being binding on, um, let's say, the Supreme Court, that the Supreme Court interprets the Constitution, but we've also talked about how members of Congress need to conduct their role um, as constitutional evaluators as they go along, as they pass, you know, laws and so forth. And the president has constitutional duties and is a constitutional actor. But by the same token, we the people are constitutional actors. And so it's our responsibility, just as it is uh, our representatives, to behave in a way consistent with the lessons of the Constitution. Right, and it behooves us to do that. We're, we're not forced to, 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 to vote for someone um, uh, uh, because of this or that. Donald Trump was eligible. He's 35. Um, Laura and Donald Jr. And, and Eric are all eligible for all these things. But when you understand the spirit behind the rules, that at least gives you something to think about. You, you use just the right word. They're just lessons for us that we ignore at our own peril. Um, and as you know, I thought that Donald Trump was uniquely unqualified for the presidency. And I said so before he was elected. And I think I made the right call then, but that's in part because I've studied why Washington was indeed first president and rightly so. And what the system uh, of the presidency was actually all about. It was designed by Washington for Washington. We're drafting for a certain position. So yeah, we're looking um, for another Washington, our generation, another Lincoln. Um, and so this series is actually designed to to tell us a little bit about who occupied the presidency early on, which ones did it well, which ones did it not so well, and why. And in the course of that, we'll understand the presidency better. So this is um, an historical uh, take on on the theme of, of the earlier podcast, which is understanding America's presidency. Now we're going to take a little bit different approach. Um, we're going to look actually at a painting um, of Washington, so this is an audio podcast. So to supplement the audio, we, we encourage you to visit uh, the website, akilamar.com, and go to the podcast page. There are links all over the website to America's Constitution. And you'll see in the show notes um, a reproduction of a painting by Edward Savage. And uh, Akil, why don't you uh, read us a little bit about what you have to say about that? And this painting, by the way, is in the National Gallery of Art, uh, and it was done in 1790, and it's entitled The First Family. Uh, and it's The First Family, circa 1790. And the painting beautifully captures the themes of republicanism that we've been discussing. In this painting, Washington, long and still strong, appears in dress uniform. A consummate horseman, perhaps America's best in his prime, he presents himself to us right, wearing riding boots and spurs. But he's not astride a rearing horse. He's not waving a sword or rallying troops. I think, for example, of uh, David's um, Napoleon in the Alps. Rather, in this painting, Washington is a Republican general at home, at peace, 
beside his vine and fig tree. Geostrategic themes subtly present themselves. A globe is at hand. The flooring suggests a chessboard, perhaps reminding viewers of the strategic concerns that could never be far from Washington's active mind, even when he might seem to be at rest. A map of the new federal city is in the works, what we today call Washington, D.C., and it unfurls on the center table and spills over the edge. America is literally building new federal edifices in a way that newspapers had foreshadowed. George's wife, Martha, gentles the portrait with her domestic elegance, counterbalancing the military and political motifs. Washington's adopted step-grandchildren, Eleanor Park Custis and George Washington Park Custis, further domesticate the scene. They bear the last name and the blood of Martha's late first husband, Daniel Park Custis, whose early death had made her a young widow in 1757. A year and a half later, she married George, who adopted her two young children. Although both Custis children died young, one in 1773, the other in 1781, grandchildren remained to brighten life, and the youngest two surely brightened the portrait. But there is something missing in this stiff depiction of the Washington family, in which no one makes eye contact. Missing something is both sad and inspiring. There is no true sun in this picture, no true air in the room. At the glory center, there's the rising S-U-N, not S-O-N, and the open air A-I-R, not H-E-I-R, of America's expansive future. Behold, says the artist, here is a portrait of a man with no sun, a truly Republican man father of none, and thus father of all, a man whose personal future is thus providentially America's future. And Washington actually uh, at one point commented on his lack of a, of a son as being uh, providential in, in this sense, didn't he? Right. That was the quotation that we had earlier that he mm-hmm. pulled out of his first inaugural address because right. it was just a little too personal. Um, but you're absolutely right in picking up on that word. Um, the word was divine providence has not seen fit that. So so he feels, I think, in some ways, that, um, so think about it. You and I are, are, are close friends, and, and we talk a lot about life, and we talk a lot about our families and our kids, you and I. Um, and it means so much to you and to me that we're both parents, uh, um, and indeed, I think once I, when I was telling you that the presidency is about what's unexpected and you said, oh, that's kind of like being a parent. You don't know what you're going to get, but you got to deal with it. And that was your reaction. Remember in that earlier yes. episode, because, mm-hmm. because you're, you're such a dad. Um, um, and, uh, so, um, think about how depressed you might feel. I know how depressed I would feel if I didn't have kids. Um, you know, day by day, they make my life, you know, miserable, uh, but I'd be nowhere without them. You know, you know, day to day, they can be a hassle. So Washington is reflecting on his life and he doesn't have kids and he so desperately wanted them. Um, but he comes to realize, oh, well, maybe Providence has another plan for me. Um, maybe my bad personal luck is because I'm destined to be father of the country and not father of, of any individual person. It's an interesting mix of religion and enlightenment uh, philosophy in that, in that situation. 
Um, and, and just reflecting on, well, you know, what's the universe telling me? One door has closed, but maybe another one has opened. Was Washington's family a subject of, of popular discussion? I mean, beyond this notion that he didn't have a son you know, while he was president, or were they more anonymous? Uh, well, Martha was very much the mother of her country, and she had been beloved um, by the troops. She came and visited Washington uh, consistently when he uh, was in, uh, in winter camp. Um, so she was very much the first mother, um, as he was the father of the country. Mm-hmm. Why don't we move on, then? Great. There's also a liveried slave in the room, probably Billy Lee, later freed. Was he, too, part of the Washington family? What should we make of him? What would he think of us or the other persons in the portrait? Uh, In the book, I will come back to these questions. But for now, um, the questions about these enslavements and eventual emancipation and larger issues of American slavery. Um, But for now, let's just uh, explore one closely related aspect of the case for George Washington in 1789. Washington was a Virginian. And that was important. Even more important, he was an American, far more than anyone else. In 1789, Virginia saw itself as the quintessential American state, the center of American gravity. So it was in many ways. To see this clearly, we must overcome certain modern hindsight biases. No one in 1789 could know what we now know. And in 1861, Virginia would ultimately and treasonously side with the extremist pro-slavery South, one mere section of the Union and the losing section at that, in a civil war that pitted most of the North and the West against Virginia and its truly reactionary Southern sisters. Even though Virginia would position itself out of the Republican mainstream in 1861, it was within the mainstream. Indeed, in many ways, it was the mainstream in 1789. Yes, Virginia was a slave state in 1789, but but so was New York. So was New Jersey. Slaves accounted for about 14% of New York's population and roughly 8% of New Jersey's. Maryland and Delaware also had substantial slave populations in 1789, and indeed both would remain slave states at the outbreak of the Civil War. But both would choose to adhere to the loyal free states to their north rather than join the treasonous slave states to their south. Virginia, for much of its history, was not entirely different. Following the pre-1789 lead of Massachusetts and Pennsylvania and several other states north of the Mason-Dixon line, New York and New Jersey would begin to phase out slavery in the 1790s and early 1800s. In 1789, many were betting that Virginia would eventually do the same. Virginia in 1789 differed sharply from South Carolina. While the Deep South's leaders openly crusaded for slavery, Virginia's greatest statesmen criticized human bondage both publicly and privately. In 1782, the Commonwealth of Virginia enacted legislation to ease private manumission. And in the mid-1780s, Virginia's congressional delegates championed free soil rules for the Northwest Territory. Two years after Washington's inauguration, the College of William and Mary following in the footsteps of Harvard and Brown, conferred an honorary degree on famed British abolitionist Granville Sharp. Founding-era Virginians were metaphorically lifelong smokers who wanted to quit. 
Indeed, they almost did. As late as the 1830s, Virginia would see notable efforts to begin an abolition process. Even in 1861, Virginia would hesitate before plunging into folly, joining, its, joining the Confederacy well after its deep South sisters. We must also remember that in 1789, Virginia included modern-day Kentucky and West Virginia, both of which would remain loyal to the Union throughout the Civil War. In short, we must remember that Virginia in 1789 was precisely in America's middle, the state where North met South met West. Virginia's backcountry spiked northwest of neighboring Pittsburgh, and the tip of its needle came close to touching Lake Erie. Prior to Virginia's session in the 1780s, modern-day Ohio was, in Virginia's eyes, northwestern Virginia. Virginians had led the American Revolution alongside the men of Massachusetts. Unlike Virginia, Massachusetts did not see itself in 1789, nor was it seen by its sisters as the modal state, even if it was in many respects the model state. Massachusetts was too northern, too eastern. Indeed, the westernmost point of the Bay State lay more than 100 miles east of Virginia's easternmost tip. The entities that we today call the northern states were at the founding more commonly designated the eastern states. The significance of the West went beyond the obvious and enormous fact that new western states would soon join the Union on an equal footing with the, their eastern states, thanks to the Northwest Ordinance, and to southwestern spin-off states, with Kentucky breaking off from Virginia and Tennessee breaking off from North Carolina. Within most of the 13 original states, power was also flowing west, fast. Revolutionary-era apportionment systems in state after state gave more states to growing western and backcountry districts than had their colonial predecessors. The shifting locations of state capitals also reflected America's westward population flow. Between 1785 and 1800, Pennsylvanians moved their state seat from Philadelphia to Lancaster, North Carolinians from New Bern to Raleigh, South Carolinians from Charleston to Columbia, and Georgians from Savannah to Louisville. Notably, notably, Virginia itself was the trendsetter, having relocated its capital from Williamsburg to Richmond, some 40 miles west in 1780. Washington had spent more time in America's rough western backcountry than from its earliest days as, as an adult than had any other leading statesman on the continent. He could see eye to eye with a man like Daniel Boone. The two had in fact met in the run up to the French and Indian War. Back then, the strapping Washington was even more rugged and physically impressive than the not yet legendary Boone. In the mid 1780s, Washington had spent considerable time and money investigating ways of interlinking East and West with a canal system that ideally would connect Mount Vernon via the Potomac to the Ohio and Grand Canoa river basins where he owned vast tracts of raw land. By contrast, most leading Eastern statesmen had not even once crossed the Appalachians. What did, say, John Adams or John Jay truly know about the forks of the Ohio or the bluegrass of Kentucky? Even Jefferson, a Virginian who spent much of his life looking west, both literally and figuratively, never ventured beyond the Shenandoah Valley. 
Washington had also spent far more time in the North than had any leading Southerner. Indeed, he had saved the North and liberated Boston in the early days of the Revolution. On his arrival in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in the summer of 1775, his initial reaction to the locals had been harsh and provincial. In a letter to a kinsman, he referred to the mass of northern men now under his command as, quote, an exceeding dirty and nasty people, unquote. But as he came to work closely with impressive northerners, the Virginia general grew to respect, admire, and even love northern men and their region. Jefferson, by contrast, had lived in Paris, but in 1789 knew rather little firsthand of New York and New England. Washington had, uh, had also spent time far south of Virginia. As a young man, he had sailed to the West Indies. Neither Adams nor Jay, nor Jefferson for that matter, had done the same. Again, we must remember that even though Virginia chose to side with the Carolinas and Georgia in 1861, Virginia in 1789 often saw itself more as a middle state and a southern state. The regions south of Virginia were quite different from Virginia itself. South Carolina and the West Indies in particular were entirely different and much more deadly for laborers. Upper South tobacco farming did not kill and waste slaves at the prodigious rate that sugar, rice, and indigo production did in the brutish, snake-infested, and disease-ridden Deep South. In the Richmond Ratifying Convention, James Madison's discussion of the international slave trade positioned Virginia as a middle state. When he spoke of, quote, southern states, unquote, at this ratification conclave, he meant states south of Virginia. On slavery itself, Virginia in the mid-1780s often allied with states to its south, but on banning slave imports, it sided with states to its north for reasons of both principle and protectionism. Morally, the international slave trade was particularly heinous, involving as it did the brutal murder and enslavement of peaceful freeborn folk in Africa and the hellish transportation of these helpless captives to the new world in putrid and pestilential transatlantic death ships. Economically, Virginia's less lethal version of slavery produced more slaves than the old dominion could use. Virginia masters, in effect, bred slaves and sold the surplus to states farther south. International slave imports lowered the price Virginians could command in this domestic interstate market. America, in short, was a vast land, and Washington understood the lay of that land, the various dispositions, local dispositions of its habitants, far better than other leaders. He understood America's land as a military strategist must, for indeed he was such a strategist. But he also understood land as a farmer might, for he was himself a farmer, or as a land speculator might, for he was that too, and before that a professional surveyor. In Lockean terms, Washington had mixed his labor with the American land in many different ways and in many different places. He had also intertwined his life with the most truly continental entity that had ever existed. That entity was not, despite its label, the Continental Congress or its successor, the Confederation Congress. These congresses were akin to international assemblies of ambassadors controlled by their home state governments parochially pursuing local interests. Nor were America's colleges the dominant institutions of national assimilation that they would one day become. 
Harvard and Yale did not draw strongly from all regions, nor did any other school except possibly the College of New Jersey at Princeton, closer as it was to America's middle and closer to Virginia in particular. In any event, these academic mixing bowls were minute. A typical college graduating class consisted of two dozen students, if that. The most truly continental entity was the Continental Army, and the most truly continental person was that army's commander-in-chief. So you're portraying uh, Washington here as a, uh, you know, a citizen of Virginia, and Virginia is in some ways, you know, the if not the prototypic state, at least the most uh, extremely important and prominent state, well positioned to be uh, in the center, not just geographically, but perhaps politically in some sense. Um, in part, it seems, although maybe not politically, but it seems somewhat analogous to California today. Um, in that it has, you know, so many so many different aspects to it. it was, you know, quite large uh, compared to the other many of the other states as well. Do you think that's a valid analogy? Uh, well, I, I'm a California. I love California, but California is, of course, so blue today. So ironically, actually, you know, maybe we could make a case for Virginia today because Virginia used to be red, and now it's. Um, blue-ish, but maybe purpley. Uh, um, um, but today, you know, Virginia is still in a way where North meets South or somewhere between Virginia um, and North Carolina. Um, um, I'm, I'm looking for a place um, uh, that's politically central and geographically central, and California isn't that place anymore. Maybe there was a nanosecond between uh, the Ronald Reagan, California of my boyhood, um, and um, uh, the, the Gavin Newsom, California of today, when when California was kind of swingy, um, but but today I don't think California swings enough um, to be kind of like Virginia in that respect. Um, well, that's um, why I said I, not I, politically, really. But what I mean, what I mean is, I was what I was trying to get at here is, um, there's a great deal of jealousy of California that takes place, you know, around the nation. Um, and of course, one might say of the coasts in general. Um, was Virginia a, uh, you know, a locus of jealous for jealousy from the other states? Oh, absolutely. So if we continue this analogy, I would say the California of Washington's era is Massachusetts you know, the liberal coastal elite um, uh, um, egalitarian place, you know, uh, um, it doesn't have um, slavery. So, so I would say um, it's got Harvard. So Massachusetts, would I say, I think be a little bit more like the California of the founding. And ironically, maybe Virginia is uh, today closer to Virginia was back then um, than at some points in between where Virginia has been um, not a swingy state. But, but, but um, in the last 20 years, Virginia has been um, a very swingy in general. Mm -hmm. but, look, but looking at how Virginia saw themselves in Washington's time, um, it does seem like, although Perhaps they weren't slaveholding in the same way that South Carolina was. You know, you point out how the slave trade became, uh, you know, very important to the Virginian economy. Um, I don't know quite to what extent the Virginians were scheming at this point in having this 
time limit on the slave trade in 1808, uh-huh. uh, you know, and so forth, which yeah. you know, increased their own, the value of their own slaves. Yeah. But this is why I'm um, getting at this question of jealousy from the other states. Okay, so on jealousy, um, on the states that think that they're better than the others, I think the more, you know, again, this is, we're playing a little bit of a time travel game, but I would say basically the two states that um, uh, see themselves as better and distinctive and generate a lot of jealousy are California and Texas. Okay, so when I'm growing up, there's the Beach Boys song, California Girls, and it's, you know, well, East Coast girls are hip, and then, you know, it's um, the Midwest farmer's daughter and the Southern girls. So there's the, you know, Eastern, you know, East Coast girls, you know, Midwest farmer's daughter, Southern, and then it's not Western, it's just California. Okay, which is not a state, it's a state of mind. Okay, so, so there are three different regions, and then there's California. Um, and that's how Texans see themselves today, too. You know, six flags over Texas, and it once was a, um, its own republic, you know, the Lone Star Republic, California, for a little nanosecond, had the Bear Flag Republic. So I would say if you're looking at the two states that think that they're something special and that generate a lot of maybe envy or resentment from the, some of the other states, I would say um, California and Texas. And maybe that's capturing something also because one is left of center and one is right of center. And that would be like Massachusetts and Virginia. And indeed, a big part of the book is how America works pretty well early on when Massachusetts and Virginia get together. So, of course, Washington's um, number two is going to be, a, he's a Virginian, it's going to be a Massachusetts guy, um, uh, Adams. And Adams, as vice president, is going to be a Virginia guy, Jefferson. Um, and uh, um, and uh, later Massachusetts people like James Madison are going to pick, excuse me, later Virginia people like Madison are going to pick um, Massachusetts um, Vice President uh, Elbridge Gary. On the Supreme Court, you got this tag team of Virginian John Marshall and his protege, the Massachusetts-based Joseph Story. So the Massachusetts-Virginia tag team um, is a very interesting storyline in the book. When Massachusetts and Virginia are pulling together, um, America works, and often with particular pairs of, of people, one from Massachusetts, one from Virginia. When Massachusetts and Virginia start pulling in different directions, we call that the Civil War. <laughs> and of course, you know, you, politically, you could say if you have a Virginian that's popular in Massachusetts, he's in good shape politically. And Washington, mm-hmm. interestingly, was by far the most popular military leader in Massachusetts during the time of the Seven Years' War. Um, and in the Revolutionary War, he saves Massachusetts as bacon. He shows up right after the Battle of Bunker Hill, and he mounts cannons on Dorchester Heights and gets the British to, to leave Boston. He saves the North. Um, and, and there's actually stuff in the book on that. I'm going to skip over um, uh, some of that um, a, a section. And here's another thing that Massachusetts and Virginia have in common. Uh, you and I are both very interested in higher education. We're going to do some segments on that later in the podcast. But, of course, Virginia and Massachusetts have America's two oldest uh, colleges. It's not our own beloved Yale. That's number three. Um, but it's Harvard and William and Mary. So, so Massachusetts and Virginia are the two oldest and proudest colonies, um, and and each uh, and they're they're quite populous, and each generates um, a certain resentment because they do think they're better than the others. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Well, shall we move on? Okay. 
America's constitutional conversation took many forms in the 1770s and 80s. Grand oratory and public declamation, Patrick Henry style, less florid public discourse, as in the Massachusetts Ratifying Convention, high-stakes debates and horse trades behind closed doors, as at Philadelphia, informal mealtime conversations, as when John Adams began to discover America, terse state constitutions and direct discourse with each other, elite newspaper essays, elaborate pamphlets, short squibs, cartoons, poems, performance art, public toast, and much more. In most of these arenas, Washington did not truly stand out. He was not a rousing orator. Late in life, he may have worried that if he opened his mouth too wide, his dentures might pop out. He said little in public debate, and he did not routinely pen long and influential tracts like Common Sense or The Federalist. He was not a clever cartoonist or a brilliant performance artist. Washington was, however, a conversationalist par excellence in his correspondence, one-on-one, with men he could trust, scattered widely across the continent and indeed across the Atlantic, thanks to pen pals such as the Marquis de Lafayette and the Comte de Rochambeau. While he often said more in these private letters than he would say publicly, much of his genius was that he was an outstanding listener. He absorbed information well. It takes two to converse, a speaker and a listener. John Adams loved to talk, but often failed to listen. Thomas Jefferson wore ideological blinders and routinely took in only what he wanted to take in. Washington excelled at soliciting and processing advice and information from a broad range of sources. At the Philadelphia Convention, he was indeed the listener-in-chief. He was also a genius at press relations. He instinctively grasped the importance of newspapers and publicity long before many of his contemporaries, though not, of course, before Franklin. Franklin saw most things before others did. As a teenager, Franklin was already getting his pieces published in his brother's newspaper by hook or crook. Similarly, Washington, at the age of 22, was composing and, with with official encouragement, making public his own accounts of his Western adventures. Here, too, as a backwards chronicler, he surpassed Boone, a contemporary who did not publish his frontier exploits until after the Revolutionary War. In mid-1754, readers in Boston, New York, and Philadelphia were all reading simultaneously about this intrepid young Virginian. More than 50 newspaper items by or about Washington appeared that year alone in at least seven distinct publications outside his home state. The Pennsylvania Journal, the Boston Newsletter, Franklin's uh, Pennsylvania Gazette, the New York Mercury, the Boston Gazette, the Boston Post Boy, and the Boston Evening Post. Indeed, one of these accounts appeared exactly in conjunction with the first appearance of a famous cartoon by Franklin, the Join or Die Snake, in May 1754. Press coverage about the young Virginian, George Washington, continued over the next several years as the World War in America's backcountry dragged on. Prior to 1760, few, if any, other young Americans succeeded in getting their names mentioned and their deeds discussed so often in newspapers across the continent. As John Adams aged, the Braintree lawyer found it hard to lag so far behind the world hero especially when Adams recalled that he himself had helped launch Washington. In the wake of Concord and Lexington, 
Adams quite rightly had backed Washington over John Hancock and all others for command of the Continental Army. Adams himself was an exceedingly ambitious Yankee who had read countless more books about law, history, government, politics, and philosophy than had Washington. But Washington towered over Adams in 1789, and not merely because George was a tall, opulent Virginian, and John was a dumpy New Englander of more middling means. At a particularly cranky moment in 1814, Adams asked, would Washington have ever been commander of the Revolutionary Army or President of the United States if he had not married the rich widow of Mr. Custis? We cannot know the answer to this envy-dranked counterfactual, but we can say this. Young Washington came to the attention of the rich and good-natured Martha Custis because, while still in his 20s, he had come to the attention of all America. He had done so not because of any especially famous birth name or vast inherited wealth. The Washingtons did not occupy the very highest run of the infinitely graduated Virginia hierarchy. George was not by blood a Randolph, Lee, Carter, Byrd, or Fairfax. Rather, Washington had come to national prominence by dint of his own merits, his muscular courage, his military prowess, and also his media savvy. James Otis had craved the world's attention in the 1761 Ritz case, but no one outside Boston was watching. John Adams himself was a proverbial fly on the wall at age 25. But in his early 20s, Washington had already shown flashes of brilliance, and that brilliance included a gift for self-presentation and subtle self-promotion. The painter John Trumbull and George Washington would later make a nice pair in this respect, forming a symbiotic relationship in which the painter made the hero look good and the hero made the painter look good. It's sure interesting to, to see the role of silence and, uh, and patience in, in Washington's life. Um, you know, one tends to think of him uh, in, in that way, um, and therefore to think of him as perhaps somewhat passive, but this, uh, this quality that he had of, of turning the media to his advantage uh, is quite the opposite, isn't it? He's, he was far more, uh, you know, intentional uh, about things than I think is perhaps commonly thought. I composed some of this material with Trump in mind. Mm -hmm. um, Trump uh, was um, working the media even as a young man. He, he's always had a gift for um, publicity, for drawing attention to himself. And I said, oh, actually, Washington did too. I'm going to give you one last passage in which you're going to see Washington's media savvy. But since I'm interested in conversation, I'm also showing you a key difference. It's not just that Washington was a great patriot um, who understood the world and had a, a, a life history of, of tremendous sacrifice. It's not just that. That's all true and makes him the, the not Trump, of course. Because you and I talked about John Kennedy. Uh, George Washington is always asking, you know, not what's good for George Washington, but what's mm -hmm. good for America. And I don't see Trump in the same uh, way, you know, maybe some other people do, but I don't. So it's not just that difference, um, which is interesting, on issues of civic republicanism um, and, and abiding by the will of the electorate and respecting the rule of law 
um, and respecting judges and juries and the limits on your powers. Not just that, it's they're totally different conversational style. And you might say, well, you know, what conversational style? George Washington's like Calvin Coolidge, he never says anything. That's not quite true, and indeed he has some very famous pronouncements, but they're very carefully composed, unlike um, the, the Trump tweets. But George Washington is a conversationalist par excellence because he's such a great listener, and, and he gets people on all sides to, to give him their advice and opinions, and that makes him a great uh, leader. And, and Donald Trump is, in my view, not a great listener and doesn't hear from all sides. Thomas Jefferson actually was not the best listener because he was an ideologue and he only wants to hear what he wants to hear. John Adams is horrible at listening because he's always broadcasting. John Adams is the original tweeter. Um, um, but I'm, I'm thinking about, I'm writing these passages, obviously with, in the Trump presidency, and I'm seeing how impressive Washington is as an advice getter and listener. This is true even before he's president, um, but as president, he gets Thomas Jefferson on the left to be a cabinet officer and advisor, and he listens to him, and he gets Alexander Hamilton on the right to be a cabinet officer and advisor, and he listens to him, and he's really, really good at soliciting information from folks. And this is all relevant because if the point of this project is partly for me to tell an historical story that has, this is your word, lessons for citizens and very concrete lessons because every four years our fellow citizens have to pick a president and that's a constitutional decision. And you and I think they're going to be able to do a better job of that if they actually understand why our good, who, who are our good presidents in the past and why they were good, and who are less good presidents in the past, and why they were less good. We can learn a lot from that because we're drafting for a position. We're picking a quarterback. We're picking a center fielder, um, um, and that's, picking a center fielder is different than picking a third baseman, and picking a quarterback is different than picking an offensive tackle, and we need to understand the position we're drafting for um, and who has done it well and who has done it less well. I think another uh, perhaps subtle quality that is brought out by the, by Washington being such a good listener is that it's not just that he has good people to advise him, but he brings out the best in them because they know that he will be listening. So when when the question of the bank comes up, Washington sends Hamilton to to write up you know the, the argument, and he writes a classic argument about you know about why you know his, his opinion on manufacturers and so forth all of these things are classics in part because they will be read they will be used they will be evaluated um so real if you know that you have a real listener listening to you your work for that person will be better which is why i like to do the podcast with you andy <laughs> <laughs> okay so um do we have another section yes the last section with the benefit of hindsight, we can see that all the great founding fathers were early sires and children of America's emerging newspaper culture. By modern consensus, history's big six founders are America's first four presidents, Washington, Adams, Jefferson, and Madison, plus Franklin and Hamilton. 
Ben Franklin was a self-made printer and popular writer who amassed a fortune before age 40 by creating what we today would call a media empire, a string of affiliated print shops and paper mills across the continent. Hamilton published his first notable newspaper piece, compelling description of a tropical hurricane, while a mere lad in the West Indies. This was his first big break in life. The vivid piece of prose brought him to the attention of patrons who financed his emigration to the mainland. While still a college student, he then published the precocious, pam precocious pamphlets and newspaper essays that eventually helped bring him alongside Washington as the general's scribe and right hand. Thereafter, he went on to become a newspaper man extraordinaire, as exemplified by brilliant, his brilliant performance as Publius and in scores of other essays before and after, published under a dizzying array of pen names. In his mid-30s, Madison teamed up with Hamilton in newspapers, and in his early 40s, Madison turned against Hamilton in newspapers. In one six-month period, in 1791-92, the Virginia Politico produced some 15 essays for a single newspaper, uh, Philip Furneaux's National Gazette. Before his debut on the national stage, Madison had brilliantly championed religious freedom in his home state via punchy and anonymous printed circular, his acclaimed memorial and remonstrance. After returning from France, Jefferson quietly created a partisan newspaper network of his own, partly financed with other people's money, a master stroke. Long before that, in his early 30s, Jefferson had published an important 1774 pamphlet articulating his theory of empire. Writing as Novanglis, John Adams published a similar newspaper piece, making a similar argument at about the same time, building on prior newspaper submissions stretching back to the mid-1760s, when the Braintree lawyer was still in his late 20s. Jefferson, Adams, and Franklin, of course, also crafted the Declaration of Independence as a punchy piece for newspaper distribution. To sum up, five of the big six were newspaper scribblers early and often. Washington might at first seem the odd man out because he did not write nearly so much for public consumption about the great constitutional issues of his era after the onset of the imperial crisis in the early 1760s. He was not a printer like Franklin, a lawyer like Adams, Jefferson, Hamilton, or an amateur scholar like all of the above plus Madison. Rather, George Washington was a gentleman, surveyor, planter, and entrepreneur, investor, soldier, administrator. In 1775 to 1776, he could not devote himself to legal and political theorizing because he was attending to other matters of some importance. In 1788, he maintained an official silence and let his chief lieutenants, whom he quietly encouraged and abetted, Hamilton, Madison, Wilson, Randolph, and Marshall, make the public case for the document it reflected his vision more than anyone else's. On closer inspection, however, George Washington was, in fact, as much a newspaper man as the others, probably a more prodigious newspaper reader, though doubtless a less prolific newspaper writer. Throughout his career, he proved himself exquisitely attentive, as he had been since 1754, when Adams was an unknown, Jefferson, a mere schoolboy, Madison, a toddler, and Hamilton, perhaps a fetus, <laughs> to his public image in America's increasingly continental press. 
And of course, this is another form of listening. You know, reading the newspapers so prodigiously. Is it- yes, yes. He's a great listener in every way, and I didn't understand that until I started researching the book. Um, and that's why I wanted to share this this excerpt in its entirety with you because I think I now understand in a way that I didn't, let's say, two years ago before I did all the research, the answer to the question, why Washington? And if you understand the answer to that question, yes, Andy, you're right. You have lessons for us today about um, what we might want to do when we're picking our next president. Because if we understand why Washington... That's helping us understand the presidency itself and therefore the constitutional decision that we have to make every four years when we pick someone for the presidency, which was what our earlier podcasts have been about. You know, and I wonder, part of your analysis here is, you know, why Washington, that question can be understood in a variety of ways. One is, you know, why was he right for the role of first president? And after all, in many ways, it was, as I think we'll see in later podcasts, you know, a more important role than second president or third president or fourth president. Um, um, but not only why, not, not only why was he right for the role, but why did he win the role? Why did Amer- the American people see that he was right for the role? And along the, along the lines of what I was saying earlier about the virtue of being a listener, if you are someone that's performing for that listener, um, I think that the American people probably perceived that their voice would also be heard by Washington. Um, So the amazing thing is that America was deeply divided about the Constitution, uh, and it squeaked through, and yet, whether you were a Federalist or an Anti-Federalist, you were for George Washington. And so, yes, he's trying to listen to both sides because he knows that a lot of the people that voted for him voted against the Constitution, but he's got to be present of everyone and got to listen to everyone. Very impressive. Yes, indeed. Well, so this is number one in our series of of, uh, four such readings and discussions. Um, Who will be next? Number two. John Adams. See you next time. Okay, thanks, pal.